This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back to Upfront. I'm Chloe Morgan. And I'm Rachel O'Sullivan. What a weekend and what a week to come. Man City remind us that they can win the title. I'm really sorry. I feel like we did forget about Man City a little bit. Uh, And Leicester remind us again that they can definitely stay up after a huge win over Liverpool. Uh, We also discussed the future of the Conti Cup with yet another Arsenal-Chelsea final on the horizon. And the Lionesses are back in action on Thursday. We preview the Arnold Clark Cup for you. I mean, first of all, guys, it's a day of love. It's a day of celebrating everything beautiful and romantic and platonic love and romantic love at the same at the same time. It's, of course, Valentine's Day. Um, Rach, obviously, what, what are you up to with, with Safe today? Anything romantic and special we need to know about? Obviously, like we do with every kind of special occasion, anniversaries and such, uh, we are spending it covering football and um, going up to oh, St. Nice. George's Park later. Yes, Very what romantic. else would we be doing? Our one true love, yeah. Of course. I mean, a combined passion shared amongst <laughs> you is, uh, is lovely. We're also joined by Tom Gary. I mean, Tom, welcome to the pod on, on, a, on, a, day of, on a day of love and celebration. What, what are you doing at the moment? Anything romantic lined up for, for this afternoon? Hi, Chloe. Yeah, I've got uh, a day entirely spent at St George's Park with the England women's team. So um, it, I guess um, you could say that's, perfect way to spend valentine's day watching football all day um but uh it's not going to be the most romantic of, of valentine's days <laughs> lots of work um but that's fine we, we we're enjoying ourselves 
I mean, just for context, uh, Tom is actually recording from his car in St, in St. George's Park. Um, so we really appreciate you jo- joining us. It's uh... hardcore. The Telegraph are getting you in your in your car and recording from there. That's some hardcore stuff. I'm very impressed. It's a massive, <laughs> massive pleasure to join you guys. It really is. Right, let's get stuck in. We've got so much to cover uh, in this pod. There's been so much drama at both ends of the table. Uh, Man City and Leicester have caused a massive stir and made things extra exciting. Uh, Man City are now bang in the mix for uh, the title now after beating Arsenal 2-1 this weekend, which by all accounts is a little bit of an upset. Um, They obviously lost their first two league games, um, but they haven't tasted defeat in the WSL since then. I mean, guys, were you there? Were you at the match at all for, for this one yes uh, I was I, I didn't really know what to expect after the Conti Cup semi-final midweek where Arsenal managed to grind out a result against City um, you know when two teams play each other so close together you don't really know whether they're going to go for similar tactics or try something completely different um, and Jonas did try something different midweek he'd gone with three at the back which seemed to work against Man City and it seemed to be a very even affair Um and Arsenal then edged it out an extra time. But, oh my God, I'm back me up here. The first half, uh, Arsenal were... I, I've never seen... Ar- I haven't seen Arsenal play that poorly in, in a long time. They were all over the place. 100%, Rach. Yeah, it was the worst that I'd seen Arsenal play since they lost at Birmingham in January of last year, which was actually their last away defeat in the WSL. And that was the last time I could recall them giving the ball away as often as they did. They just kept giving away possession in, in really dangerous areas in their own defensive third uh, and But on the flip side, I thought Man City were excellent. They worked really, really hard off the ball. I think it was the best performance I'd seen in a Man City shirt from Philippa Angledahl by quite a distance. I thought she was very, very good. And Yui Hasegawa was hugely impressive. Their performances were probably aided a little bit by the Arsenal tactical setup because Man City had an extra player in midfield in that first half. But nonetheless, I thought they were excellent. And I also want to say how well I thought Alex Greenwood played and also Leo Alexandri. Those two... Barely put a foot wrong um, and, and Greenwood's form this season um, has just been absolutely immense. She's been a fantastic player for Man City. I know it looked to me as if they were very uh, nervous. Uh, you know, playing out from the back clearly wasn't working for them on, on quite a few occasions. They didn't seem to change up the game plan too much. I mean, there were a couple of wayward passes at the back that obviously put uh, put Arsenal under pressure. And I think, you know, it was lucky not to be 3-1. I mean, that bunny shore chance where Zinsberg had just about got a toe to it, that could have, uh, that could have well, it did it did change the game eventually. But um, but yeah, it just, it just looked a little bit... Um, a little bit lacklustre, I've got to say. And that was that was disappointing, I think, obviously given the, the, the result last weekend against West Ham, to then go into this game knowing that they had to pick up those points to maintain you know, a competitive title race. It, it just looked flat. I thought Jonas Eideville got his tactics wrong in the first half. And I think sometimes he gets a little too focused on outsmarting the other team tactically, if you know what I mean. And obviously that's a very important um, part of the game. But... You know, when you talk to managers before matches, they always talk about we're going to focus on us and what we do well. And I just, it felt a little bit like he was focused too much on trying to trip City up with doing something slightly different. So it felt like they were kept switching from a three at the back to a four at the back when they were in and out of possession. And that seemed to be catching them out because Noel Moritz on, on the, in the fullback position was kind of finding herself in no man's land. And Williamson would have to come across and try and cover that space. And then Wubin Moy would be completely out of position with too many players to mark and as Tom said City seemed to have that extra player in midfield that was something that Gareth Taylor had tactically done really well they were putting far more pressure on Arsenal trying to get the ball out of the back line 
Um, and they just couldn't problem solve quick enough on the pitch. And I was surprised it took until half time for them to actually make any changes because the damage really could have been done in that first half if Manuel Zinsberger hadn't kept them in the game at 2-0. Well, I mean, it could be a very costly fixture. I mean, on a very disappointing, unfruitful February. Uh, I mean, Arsenal face uh, Chelsea on the 26th of February. Another massively difficult and critical game for them. Um, I mean, a win for Chelsea could then put them, I think, eight points clear. Um, yeah, do we think that, you know, obviously the title race is that out of contention and, um, and even less importantly or more importantly, the, the Champions League. Do we think that that third spot is now... Is now um, looking a little bit out of out of reach for them potentially. Yeah, Tom, what what are your thoughts? Yeah, Arsenal have got a battle on their hands to make sure they they stay in 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 a European place. Absolutely, because um, they you know when you're missing players of the quality of Miedemar and Mead, um, and, and you get into a little bit of a tough run of fixtures which they've got coming up, and they're going to have that trip to Bayern Munich as well. It's it's going to be very difficult for Arsenal, but um, I wouldn't rule them out of the title race completely yet. I think all four sides in the top four could could still win it. My, my personal tip all season has been Chelsea. I still think Chelsea will will edge it because of the the depth in on their bench and and the quality of the players they have. If they, if they lose anybody, but it's so great for the neutral because all four teams have all got to play each other again. There's going to be so many of those head to heads, and that's where it will come down to. Um, and yeah, I wouldn't discount. Arsenal or Man City out of the title race yet, but Arsenal now at a real disadvantage after that particular defeat, and and they now know they're going to have to go and beat the other three if they want to win the title. I would fully agree with Tom. I think, look, it does look pretty disastrous. If you're an Arsenal fan, you'd be pretty worried. Um, but like you say, I just think anything can happen in football. So to rule them out would be a mistake on on the other three teams' parts. I think, and equally, Man City are just chipping away back up that table. Um, but yeah, I just we cannot underestimate how difficult it's been for them losing Mead and Miedema. This isn't just kind of, you know, uh, when I say key player, we talked on previous pods about their proficient, prolific, they're prolific in front of goals. Sixty six percent of last season's goals they were involved in. So, you know, it is a big mountain to climb for them. But who knows? Well, we'll wait and see. I mean, they've just brought in a fantastic new uh, set-piece specialist, so maybe that'll become their forte for the rest of the season if they're not going to be creating too many chances in, in open play with Mead and Miedemar gone. So, maybe it, like you said, it is still early days. We are only sort of mid-Feb, so I think every 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 single week, I think it's it's, a, it's been a brilliant season. <laughs> I think every single week there seems to be a, a slight shift in on balance of where we're going. But I think if we now focus on, I mean, the other end of the table, because that has got, I think that's equally as dramatic and equally as exciting. Uh, I mean, We've been bigging up Leicester City recently and they only went and beat Liverpool 1-0. I can only imagine the fury and rage from Matt Beard after those uh, after that game. Um, I mean, Willie Kirk has obviously come in, uh, you know, start of, uh, start of 2023s. Um, you know, it's, um, he, he's, had a, he's had a great little run, has Willie Kirk. I mean, what a result for them. I mean, guys, you, were, you, were you at the game at all? I, I wasn't at Tom? this particular game, but I did see Leicester uh, against Man City in the Conti Cup last month in person. And spent, although they lost that game, Leicester, I, I sat there watching the entire game thinking to myself, this is not a team that looked like they're going to get relegated. And at, at that point, they they were right down in the doldrums in, in the league and, and struggling in the league. But they've since Willie Kirk came in, they have looked like a completely different side off the ball, the way they're organising themselves, as soon as they lose it, they're all getting straight back into shape. They're working really, really hard in the, in the midfield. And they're much more confident now with the ball going forward. They're being a, mo- a lot more adventurous. It was often 
it seemed in the first half of the season as though the ball just wasn't sticking up top for them. Hannah Kane is transforming that since she's come back to fitness. I think she's a very useful striker. And I, at the moment, I don't see them getting relegated at all. Um, I think they are playing more like the kind of ninth, 10th, 8th best team in, in the division at the minute. And I, if I was a Reading, Brighton or uh, Liverpool or Tottenham fan as well, I'd be very worried about Leicester um, not getting relegated because that could put the cat amongst the pigeons. I've been so impressed. I was there at the Leicester-Brighton game where they picked up points um, right at the beginning of the year. And like Tom said, they just look like a completely different outfit. You know, in the past, I think we'd obviously seen them defend very well, but it didn't feel like they had anything beyond that. It was very much keep the ball out of our half, whereas they actually look like they have a plan of action now when they when they stop the opposition team's attack. You know, they're much more confident and, and capable of, of playing the ball out and getting forward and actually putting their own attack together. And I just think there's so much more of a, a style of play that you can see from them. So, yeah, just watching these teams, other teams slowly get lassoed and, and pulled slightly closer to the relegation zone is um, making for an equally interesting bottom half of the table because, you know, we all thought Leicester, well, Chloe, you and I were, we, we didn't have them dead set to go down. Um, I had pipped Brighton and after this weekend's performance, uh, Brighton's performance, I'm still pipping Brighton. Um, but yeah, I think we all kind of thought relegation was was nailed on for maybe one or two teams to battle it out. And now we're looking at four, maybe five teams getting in and around that area. I've got to say, I think I'm. I feel slightly embarrassed now. So I think at the start of uh, start of this season, I did say I think I already put a nail in the coffin with them, and that was about October time. And now they've made a massive surge. They're just allergic to going down to the championship. They just <laughs> won't do it. They keep hanging on that cliff edge for them. Um, but yeah, I mean, Willie Kirk. I mean, in the in the post match, he was saying everyone wrote us off. He said that everyone said that we were done, but we're far from done, and we've got a lot of points left in us. Yeah, it will be a really sweet end of the season when, not if, we've oh. proven people wrong. That is bold, Willie, given how many games are left uh, and how tight the relegation zone is at the moment. I mean, it's a matter of a win or a draw at the moment. So, yeah, I mean, who, who do we think, uh, apart from Leicester, who do we think are still in the in the sort of contention for, for relegation? Because I have quite a lot of concerns about Spurs at the moment. They don't seem to be finding a good run of form. And, um, you know, regardless of the fact they've brought in Beth England, it doesn't seem uh, that that's going to turn around their fortunes too much. I mean, Tom, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, Spurs really need to butt their ideas up a little bit. Seven WSL defeats in a row is relegation form. There's no other way of describing it. That's that's awful, awful form. I don't think Spurs will go down, purely because I think they've got the quality up front with Bethany England that can get them out of trouble. But they they need to turn this run around sooner rather than later because they're really getting sucked into it at the moment. And the defending has not been very good. I thought they actually played quite well at the weekend against Manchester United. But if you look back over the last seven games, the defending's generally not been very good. And with the other teams improving, they will need to wake up a little bit and just realise that they are, you know, not too good to get relegated to the championship. Because it, it's so tight now, and if you lose seven games in a row, you have to be contenders. I think at the moment, um, I'm really worried for Brighton. Again, defending looks really all at sea with the way they played against Villa. But we haven't seen the new manager bounce yet under Jens Schur that perhaps they would have been hoping for. So I'm worried about Brighton, and I think and and Reading. I'd, if I have to predict someone to go down at the moment, I would probably be saying Reading. They played an extra game, um, and, and you know they weren't able to invest hugely in January. That that's difficult for Reading because they're the only men's championship affiliated club in the division. So of course they're going to get outspent and outbid by by their rivals down there. 
And in the long term, if you're looking five, six years down the line, do I see Reading surviving in the WSL unless the men's team were to get into Premier League? Sadly not, just because of the outspending that the others can do. But yeah, so sorry, that was a long answer, but I, I would probably say Reading at the moment, I fear for them. But Brighton have also got to be really, really worried because they just can't defend at the moment. Yes, I pretty much agree with that. I think for Spurs, I will, and I have done this whole season, defend them a little bit because seeing that their results against Chelsea and Man United, this is a frustrating thing for teams. You can play well against the top four and if you don't, you know, score goals and, and win the game, it means nothing in the table. So that will be frustrating for them because I do think they deserved something out of that game against Man United yesterday. And obviously they, they took the game to Chelsea in the previous fixture. So it feels like they brought in some good players. They're slowly starting to find something and then they get hit with two massive games against the top two teams, which isn't easy. So it really is. These next few games for Spurs, they've got to start picking up the wins. But ag agreed, looking at the table, Reading look the most in danger. But looking at how teams have been playing, Brighton are the ones that worry me. Right, we turn now to the Conti Cup. I mean, Tom, you wrote a, a great piece uh, for the Telegraph uh, after the semi-finals last week. Uh, Chelsea beat West Ham just just seven nil, just seven, just seven goals there. Uh, and Arsenal battled past Man City one nil. Um, Arsenal and Chelsea will meet each other on the fifth of March, uh, meaning another season passes that no other team outside of Man City, Chelsea, and Arsenal will lift the trophy. Uh, it's been running for twelve seasons now. Um, I mean, obviously, I've you know I've been a part of the, the Conti Cup for uh, a fair few years. Uh, never really made it out of group stages, I think, with either Spurs or, or Crystal Palace. Uh, so slightly embarrassing uh, Conti Cup <laughs> record myself. Um, but it's always been one of those um, weird... Uh, weird tournaments, I think, that it's not the, it's not got the excitement of the FA Cup and it's not the sort of... Um, no one really gets that excited about the Conti Cup, but it still feels like a lot of teams want to be involved in it. I think, you know, Tom, I think you, you've spoken to a few teams recently, sort of, if, if you've got any kind of thoughts or insider knowledge that we can we can glean from from your conversations with any of the clubs about the Conti Cup and, and its longevity, I think, going forwards. Yeah, I've spoken to as many people as possible behind the scenes at all of the WSL clubs uh, and a few championship ones too. And so far, I've not found anybody who was thinks that it's right that those Champions League teams don't enter until the quarterfinals. Um, even speaking to Arsenal and Chelsea staff behind the scenes, there's a feeling that they, you know, they they should and could be coming in earlier. They've got the squads to manage this. And I think they feel that, uh, you know, just everyone seems to agree that winning only three matches to win a cup is just, is just not enough. So for the kind of sporting integrity of the competition, I, I, that feels wrong to me that anybody should get a bye to the the quarterfinals. I know that there are other men's competitions where teams get buys through the early rounds, but we're talking about the quarterfinals here, which sort of should be an achievement even to get that far, in my in my opinion. And that seems to be the general consensus. The argument on the other side is is around uh, the amount of fixtures and, and you know players being burnt out and and fixture congestion. But in in my opinion, and I think that in the majority of people that I speak to, there are enough dates in in the calendar. We haven't got very many league matches. Let's not forget. And I think it comes down to quite poor calendar management, actually, that we can't fit in more matches um, in, in a Continental Cup. My um, my fear is that, you know, with teams not entering to the quarterfinals, it just brings in a sort of a, a tin pot feel to the competition. It, it's not taken seriously enough by people who look at it and think you only want two matches and you're straight into a final. So I hope... Uh, and, I, and I believe these things are under review for the future. You know, I hope that there will that will change 
uh, for, for next season and beyond because um, it's just not a good look for the Conti Cup at all to, to make such an easy passage for, for those Champions League teams. Yeah, I think, um, you know, from the champions, championship club's perspective, I think um, the competition, whilst it's, I think we do kind of like it in a way, it does give us a little bit more, uh, you know, competition, a lot of game experience. We get sort of, you know, players who, uh, aren't, you know, aren't getting as much game time as, 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 uh, as they would like, uh, given opportunities to, to get that. And I think amongst, you know, you know, WSL clubs to kind of put each other against each other and see, you know, where they are, where they need to develop, how close they are to, you know, the WSL and, and some of that. So I do think, there is a benefit to the championship clubs obviously they don't have the kind of fixtures and scheduling that the WSL has but you know if you want the championship to become as competitive as possible and as close to the WSL as possible you still do need those kind of regular fixtures because I know in the championship I mean we have gaps sometimes of two three weeks where there's just no fixtures due to international breaks or uh, just just scheduling and things like that so I do think there is some merit to it for for the championship I mean Rach what are your thoughts on it do you think it's a, a serious competition do you think fans engage with it in a way that you know makes it worthwhile going forwards I think um, there's been a lo- always a lot of talk about the Conti Cup when it comes up um, and generally not about the football but about the competition and the format I don't really understand the dislike for the competition um, as you said Chloe I agree I think it's really important for championship teams and for teams further down the league to get more fixtures in and to challenge themselves against top teams and top opposition it's the only way we're kind of going to grow the game I think um, so from that perspective I think it's really important you know, I've seen a lot of different arguments out there. Obviously, talking about the buy into the quarters is not really a great look. So I, in terms of an integrity perspective, I agree with Tom on that. But, you know, there's been chats about, oh, it's boring that Arsenal, Man City and Chelsea keep winning it. Well, putting them in the group stages isn't necessarily going to change that, first of all. That's not really going to address that issue. That's a, an issue of investment and clubs investing more in, in their women's teams and, and trying to keep up with those top teams. Um, and then, you know, I've seen calls for it to be scrapped, which I just think is crap personally, um, because that's not really thinking about anyone beyond the top four. Yes, it will stop the top four winning it. But what about everybody else who um, are struggling for fixtures and game time? And, you know, that's important for the growth of the game. So maybe it's about kind of reconfiguring the, the competition. Um, Soph put out a, an idea that they, there could be a bit of like a, the WNL Cup, you know, you could have your, your group games and then for those who don't get through the group stages they could maybe play a, a Conti plate or a Conti cup plate um, which could be a knockout competition and that, that gives more fixtures um, to those teams who maybe don't qualify for the latter stages of the tournament but I do think there's space for it and need for it and I don't think it should be scrapped. All right, I mean, Continental Tires, if you're listening, uh, we're well on board for a, a Conti uh, silver plate. That would be absolutely amazing. Um, but yeah, I think like like you said, sort of you touched on there, Tom, about, you know, the, the fixtures and the schedulings, particularly with the, the WSL and, you know, the Champions League, the FA Cup. Do you think the Continental Cup sort of as it is works well with the kind of, you know, not trying to or not, not getting the players into a situation where they're overworked and that they're having, you know, midweek games? Because I think once you start to get into a situation where you've got those midweek games coming up, you know, really regularly, it does affect the training schedule it affects you know injuries we've already seen we've had so many discussions about ACLs and then MCLs um maybe it should just be a a, a championship and lower league um con- uh, a tournament rather than uh, including the WSL at all would they be that fussed is anyone that fussed no I I really passionately believe that that we should protect uh, and preserve the idea of, of a league cup you know I think um having those three major domestic trophies is really important you're in football to try and win silverware in, in a large part at the end of the day right but I do think the competition need, needs a little bit of reform on on the on the player welfare and fixtures. That's a really interesting topic. But my my one of my main concerns about the impact on on players in terms of the schedule is the international calendar, 
where in the women's game we've got a, an extra international break compared to the men's where we squeeze and we're squeezing three fixtures into it in this Arnold Clark cut window the men don't have this this window and also that the top women's players are asked to play in the Olympics as well where you get another summer without a rest and what we tend to find is and we'll get it again this summer is after the Champions League final players might only get one or two weeks off before they're straight into their prep camps for the World Cup so you don't really get an off-season so my big concern around the calendar is that lack of an off-season for players to get a proper recovery mentally and physically hey I'm not a player so I don't know what it feels like to play midweek weekend midweek but I think we have to remember that you know in the league what league, league one league two men's championship they're playing 46 league games a season and we're only playing 22 here in the WSL so that and the championship so that there has to be room for more club fixtures it, otherwise we just we're just completely mismanaging the calendar with, with the Conti Cup one one um if I could just give a little bit of a manifesto for it one thing I would like to change as well is to when we've got those early rounds for the championship sides to play at home um for for couple of reasons but partly because some of there are still some players who are juggling day jobs with semi-professional football in the championship and it's very hard to go away from home on a midweek night to travel a long distance if the if the lower if the WSL sides are away from home in that in that group stage or early rounds I think that would help in a big way there and also it just gives them an exciting fixture just to market and sell more tickets and you're not playing the same when you know you've got home game against the WSL side, you're going to attract more people into from your community who might not have come to a, a championship game. So that's one of the things I would change, as well as bringing in the the bigger sides uh, earlier on in the competition. I would say what you were saying there, Chloe, about making it a, a championship um, competition. We have a tendency to think about the WSL from the, the the mindset of the top four, or even you know not even the top four, the top two because they're in the Champions League, but. It's, you know, all those teams below top four massively benefit from those additional fixtures, in my opinion, in terms of, you know, getting their teams bedded in, getting new players bedded in, giving more players minutes. Um, so, yes, I know that two teams will be playing further into the Champions League, but everybody else, I think it's it's valuable for them um, to play those fixtures. And because those top teams have depth, they can be playing younger players or academy players in that fi- that competition if they really wanted to. So I do think there's value for it in the WSL as well. All right, guys. I mean, you've set out your stands pretty well and pretty robustly uh, for the Conti Cup. So, um, you know, Continental Tires, if you're listening, I think you're safe for at least another couple of seasons. Um, <laughs> but also invest in it. Like, show it. Put it on FA Player. Put it on TV. Like, people aren't going to grow to love a competition if you're not giving them access to see it. And at the moment, it's not particularly well shown or put out there for, for people to watch and get really invested in. We should also say um, that they're unfortunate and it's like an awkward number of teams at the moment, right? It, it's it's 24 clubs, which is not always easy to fit into a format. And I guess my long-term hope for the WSL and the Championship and in turn the Conley Cup is that we can get to a stage where there are 16 teams in WSL and 16 teams in the Championship, which for various reasons is, I think, a really good place to be in. You get 15 home games, 15 away games, 30 matches. But for the Conley Cup, that would be beautifully symmetrical because you'd have 32 teams, which just fits into so many nice formats for a really fair sporting competition. So that's my kind of hope long term, is that that's where we'll be maybe in five years time. But for now, yeah, it's not not an easy solution with, with an awkward number of clubs.
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Well, talking of additional fixtures uh, and mm-hmm. matches coming up, we have got the Arnold Clark Cup uh, kicking off this week. Uh, I mean, exciting news. Jordan Nobbs, uh, who's had a, a great weekend, uh, back in the England squad. Uh, she was not initially named in the squad last week, but she replaced Fran Kirby on Sunday uh, and then obviously went on this weekend to score a hat-trick against Brighton. I mean, what a way to show Serena that you're really bloody ready uh, for the Arnold yeah. Clark Cup. Uh, I mean, what do we think of her return? Do you think she's going to start? Do you think uh, Serena's going to give her, give her a shirt back for that, that opening game? Um, I think looking at the teams in the tournament, we might see a bit of rotation. I know Serena's not huge on changing her starting 11, but um, I would like to think we'd see uh, Jordan Nobbs get some game time. I think, to be fair, she took a little while to find her feet at Villa. She was playing well. I think Lucy Stan maybe kind of had a bit of a bigger impact and it was probably a lot to do with managing minutes as well. Um, but I think it's brilliant that she, she's gotten in. It's a shame it's uh, because Fran Kirby's picked up a lock. Um, but she's one of those characters in the women's game that just gets support from all over, from all different teams. You know, you're seeing her Arsenal teammates sharing the fact that she scored a hat-trick this weekend at Villa. You know, stuff like that. She's just one of those characters that a lot of people really, really love. And with all the injuries she's gone through and the tournaments she's missed out on, seeing her getting called up um, is always going to huge, be hugely popular. So yeah, I'm delighted for her. Yeah, I really hope that Jordan Nostobs gets some minutes. One thing I would say though, is where we have we have seen in previous camps under Serena, when somebody's been added in to the squad as an injury replacement, they don't tend to get very many minutes. We saw, for example, in, in, in the last camp that happened with, with Gabby George, and it's happened with other people in previous camps where you know, if they're a late addition, she doesn't, she doesn't actually often use use them. I think that'd be a big shame because Jordan Nobbs has really got the bit between her teeth at the minute. She's in great form. I thought she should have been in the initial squad last week. And I hope she gets some game time. Probably in that middle game against Italy is the most likely game for, for rotation. But England need to experiment, I think, Chloe, in this, um, in this camp because um, there's still a few things to figure out, particularly... Um, in particularly midfield, particularly if anything, um, we're going to touch wood here, that if anything was to happen to Kira Walsh or Georgia Stanway, those two more guaranteed starters in central midfield, if, if England, I don't think England know the next best alternative yet. And that's an opportunity now for England to figure that out. Could it be Jordan Nobbs who comes in if anything was to happen to Georgia Stanway? Or, or is it Laura Coombs? Is it Katie Zellum? I'd, I'd like to get an idea of that through this Arnold Clark Cup. Uh, and I think, I think that's one of the big questions facing Serena Wiegmann. 
I think it's just all, all very all very coincidental timing, really. I mean, obviously, the whole reason I think that Jordan Knowles went over to, to Aston Villa, I think, is to try and get more game time, try and get more exposure and try and get more seen by, by Serena. And now the week before the Arnold Clark Cup is that first big opportunity to, to step in and, and potentially get some minutes and and, uh, and get back her, her shirt. So, yeah, I think it'll be an interesting time. Interesting time. Um, Chloe, for you as a player, have you, especially as a goalkeeper, have you had it where you've maybe not been picked for a squad and then been brought into a squad how does that impact you mentally did you do a a Jordan Nobbs and suddenly pull off like some insane saves like what does it do (laughs) for you as 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 a player I think it can it can go one or two ways. I think uh, you know there's obviously been occasions where uh, I've been starting. There's been occasions where I've had to come on, uh, you know, with a red card or after an injury. And I think as a as a substitute, you kind of get yourself in a certain type of mindset. I mean, especially as a goalkeeping substitute, you really don't expect to be coming on the pitch. It's very very rare. Um, so you get yourself in the mentality. You do what you can, but also you kind of um, you, you have a baseline like your adrenaline drops down because you know that you're you're probably not going to be uh, called upon. But I think when you uh, you know, you get given that opportunity. I think it is very nerve wracking, especially if you haven't had, um, you know, a lot of game time, especially for, for Jordan Nobbs, I suppose, not had a lot of international game time herself in quite a while. And she knows that there's a lot to prove. And she is sort of, you know, one of the more senior players now. She is getting on and these opportunities are going to be far and few between. So, um, yeah, I think the nerves are definitely going to be there for her. And, and you know, rightly so. It's it's a very competitive environment at the moment. But, you know, she's experienced and she's been in really high, highly pressurised, highly demanding situations. So, you know, I've Every, every faith in her that when she does get her minutes she's going to absolutely smash it and uh, yeah I, I hope to see I hope to see that she does make some you know some start, maybe a start or so and, and does um, uh, yeah does enjoy her time on the pitch why the hell not back with uh, you know a lot of a lot of people that she's very close with um, but yeah I mean it's going to be a, a really exciting Arnold Clark card me and Rachel are going to be down there on Thursday for an at the match upfront special um, I mean guys what, what are we thinking about this year because obviously last year the lineup was very very strong. Uh, we had Spain, Canada, Germany. Uh, you know, it was a great test just before the Euros. Um, but this year we've got Italy, Belgium and South Korea. Uh, England facing South Korea uh, on Thursday uh, at Stadium MK before they head to Coventry and Bristol. Um, what do you think we're expecting from, from these sides? They're, they're sides, I suppose, that not a lot of people know too much about, well, especially South Korea might not know too much about. I mean, Tom, have you, uh, have you got any insider knowledge for us on what we can expect on, on Thursday? Yeah, I think um, South Korea probably possibly will, will will provide the sternest test of the three matches actually, um, and did very well in in the Asia Cup. And I think um, they were a team that Serena Vigman really particularly wanted to to play from a tactical point of view. She said she sees quite a lot of similarities tactically with with them and China, who of course England are going to come up against uh, in the summer. So that's quite an important game in terms of that preparation. But realistically, when England are taking on sides, I think ranked 15th, 17th and 20th in the world, England will be expecting to win this tournament. Uh, and almost that's kind of like a secondary thing, in my opinion, whether they win the Arnold Club Cup. But I think it's more about how is a team shaping up ready for for the World Cup. They, they've, It's sort of a weird situation now where England have been in this incredible unbeaten run under Serena Wiegmann and done so, so, so well. But, the, you know, a couple of draws in, in the autumn that they probably, you know, will think they need to improve on certain things from that. So I think we'd like to see England all guns blazing, full of confidence and, you know, showing that they're ready to go out and win the World Cup because that's what this year is all about. Yeah, I think, yeah, not quite the same maybe calibre of team as last time, but I think it allows England to prepare for maybe some of the challenges they'll face in the World Cup in the group stages. Um, you know, having to break down teams, 
um, who may sit behind the ball a little bit and, and kind of look to counter. So I think it's quite important for them to get those experiences before a major tournament as well. Um, they've obviously tested themselves against some of the best at the Euros and of course playing the US as well. So I think playing these kinds of teams is quite important. Um, and from looking at how Belgium and Italy played in the Euros, they didn't have a brilliant Euros. Um, maybe Belgium improved a little bit as it went on, but realistically, as Tom said, I do think they should be beating these three teams, but it's it's what they can glean from this competition that's the most important thing. I mean, could you imagine the, the fan response if we go on and win the Arnold Clark Cup for two years in a row and then obviously we've won the Euros and then going into the World Cup, I think everyone's going to be, uh, it's coming home uh, on a pretty strong vibe in the, in the lead up to this tournament. Are we all looking forward to seeing Millie Bright defend that golden boot though? That's what, we, yes. that's what we're really waiting to see. <laughs> The obvious choice. <laughs> uh, I mean, Serena said last week that it's still too early to prepare for a World Cup without Beth Mead. Uh, obviously, she's out at the moment with uh, quite a serious injury. Um, yeah, do you think that's a, a sort of fair assessment uh, of the situation or do you think that's a little bit naive? I mean, ACLs, MCLs, you know, notoriously take at least about 12 months before we see a kind of even very minor return to play. So, um, yeah, I, I think that does seem a little bit ambitious, maybe. Rach? I think ambitious is the right word maybe not naive I think she's not going to turn around and tell a player that your chances are out kind of thing but equally you know I'm not sure even if Beth Mead's recovery goes like amazingly well that she's going to end up having much time for game time before the tournament and I just think there is enough quality to cover for her in the tournament um, and I just don't see it being worth risking her trying to get back quickly um, for the tournament you know she's young enough that she can make another Euros and another World Cup and, and sh I'm sure she will um, but I just I don't feel like it's it's worth the risk to try and get her back into it um, and I do think England need to be preparing for the World Cup and I'm sure they are uh, for a World Cup without her unfor unfortunately Yeah I think um, I'd be very um, surprised pleasantly surprised but very surprised if we see Beth Mead in, in that World Cup squad for a few reasons but partly because we've seen Serena Wiegmann's mantra in the past has always been about how you're playing for your club. And realistically, I don't think Beth Mead will get any club games in before we come to picking that World Cup squad. I, England have said all the way through, even behind the scenes, you know, more off-record stuff and things are saying that, that they will give Beth Mead every possible chance to get fit for that tournament and maybe make the decision as late as possible. But the scenario that I'm sort of envisioning it might be a little bit similar to um, Steph Horton's situation last year where... She was in, brought up into the preliminary camp. I can see that happening to give me the chance to prove her fitness here at St George's Park, maybe in June, early July. But then I think that, you know, it, it would be a big ask to expect Beth Mead to be all guns blazing and firing for, for the World Cup, um, you know, eight months after, after having surgery. So, uh, and I think we fans would love to see her there, but we also have to think about her long-term career. What would be better, you know, to have her have a really good long pre-season get into the best possible shape the best possible recovery and be really careful and have a brilliant season next year and get ready for the next Euros and Olympics or to risk it and, and, and God forbid something go wrong again that's a decision that I think everybody involved will, will be thinking about very very carefully um, so yeah hoping she can get better but realistically I, I'd be very surprised and talking about their sort of, you know, in, in terms of Serena's choice of, of team, um, do we think that we're going to see the same 
starting eleven that we saw throughout the Euros because I mean Serena is a stickler for consistency and not wanting to change the process and not wanting to change the players too much and obviously we've seen you know quite a few uh, newbies sort of joining the squad uh, Emily Ramsey there joining joining in um, do we think that she'd give the newbies a go for for a competition like this or do you think actually she's going to use this as the set format and work out what the precise team is that she wants going into to the World Cup rage? I think we might see a little bit of rotation. We did when they played Norway and Spain um, back in November. It was Norway, wasn't it? I, I missed one of the games, but there was a little bit of, of rotation. Um, and I, I kind of think she has to. Like, I feel like during running up to the Euros, she kind of didn't have as much time to be flexible and figure things out. She kind of had to know who her best 11 was and she got that um, very good routine of bringing on those really impactful substitutes or finishers, as we like to call them. Um, but I think she does have to use these windows now because the players have left, players are injured, they need to bleed in new players and they need to get game time. So we may not see loads of rotation, but I do think we'll see some. And I think I, I'm just fascinated to see whether we're going to see Rachel Daly get another chance up front like she had when she scored um, against Norway, you know, or will Serena revert to using her, you know, more as a left back all the time because we, we've we seen in the squad announcement that Rachel Daly was listed as a defender, which actually for the second top scorer in the WSL this season uh, it's, it's a really unusual situation um, but I, I yeah I, I suspect in answer to your question Chloe during the World Cup I don't think we'll see much rotation at all I think Serena's plan will be to pick an 11 that if it things go well she'll stick with it all the way through so there but in this particular tournament I, I do think we'll see a bit of rotation I think we could see as many as 10 changes for the second match um, in, in the middle um, and I, I, there are, I think there's some big questions still to, to for England to figure out um, because without Mead at the moment, you know, who's starting in, in, in the wide forward positions is really up for grabs. There's loads of great contenders for those positions. We're expecting Alessia Russo probably to be the first choice central number nine, but, you know, Rachel Daly's going to be part of that conversation as well, isn't she? I, it's, I, I, this, I, this is fascinating. I, I'd love to know who the, you know, who's in line as well for second choice in certain positions, things like, you know, centre half, if England were to lose a Millie Bright, is that is that Maya Letizia coming in or is that Lotta Rubamoy? Don't Lotta say Rubamoy? stuff like that, Tom. You know, oh but, but, the, but these are the, um, England, uh, it's a horrible thought, but England have continuously plans. You know, we know from last summer, yeah. Serena Vigman drew up all these plan B, plan C, plan D. She even had a plan for what they would do if she caught COVID, which actually she did catch COVID. You know, they had a plan. What will, <laughs> so they will have, they'll have a plan in place if if anything was to go wrong with certain positions. And I, I think those number twos, in certain positions is what's really up for grabs at the moment because there's a lot of competition in the squad on the bench. I think, I, 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 Tom, I 100% agree with that. I think you have to use competitions like this that are, obviously aren't as important as the big major you know, tournaments that are going to be going on this summers uh, to really you know, get some experience, get, get the youth to have some of that experience, yeah. that exposure. But across the pond, uh, I mean, another, another great cup. The She Believes Cup kicks off on Thursday as well. Canada play the US in their opening game after a very turbulent week. Uh, last Friday, the captain, Christine St. Clair, said the team would strike because of concerns over funding cuts and a lack of equal pay uh, and then everything sort of changed uh, by Saturday the team said they had called it off because of threats of legal action uh, by Canada Soccer which included threats that they would claim millions of dollars in damages from both the Players Association and the individual players themselves in the squad um, I mean the squad have said that they're going to play the She Believes Cup in protest 
a lot's been going on. Um, yeah, I mean, slightly disturbed by the fact that Canada Soccer is going to say they're going to sue individual players uh, because they're raising concerns about gender equality, pay equality, um, and and lack of equal treatment. I mean, Rach, what what the hell? It's a very stark reminder of how far things still need to go in a lot of places. I mean, Canada are, what, six in the world? Um, they, they won the last Olympic gold medal. Like, these are a damn good team. This team have been leading the way for a long time. And obviously, Christine Sinclair is one of the highest capped players and with one of, some of the most goals. You know, they're known for their, their soccer team, um, as I say over there. Um, so to see this is a real gut punch. And a, like to think that a, a federation who says they're struggling for money can somehow find the money to threaten legal action and suing players like for that to be their go-to there's kind of rings of spain around it where you know they think they're not really thinking about the growth of the game um and, and didn't the men the men also um went on strike or or kind of they did something before their world cup as well um so yeah they, they've got the women's team of, of full support from the men's team which is brilliant um, but the Federation's really not shining itself in a very good light. To, to threaten legal action and to threaten to sue individual players is just bizarre, uh, a very a bizarre approach. And this thing of them playing in protest, the She Believes Cup, they don't really have much of a choice. Um, and I just think to, to prevent effectively staff from protesting poor working conditions uh, in this day and age is, is pretty shameful. Yeah, and I think what's really alarming, you made the point already there, Rach, but we're talking about the Olympic champions and that should hit home for people around around the rest of the world. If, if this is how they're feeling in Canada, how are they feeling in countries ranked 100th in the world, 150th in terms of their conditions? And, you know, there are a lot of concerns around the world about... It, it, we're looking at in South America, we've, we've seen over recent years lots of problems with, with players in their federations. And I, this this has to be a bigger priority for FIFA, at the end of the day, you know, to look at what's going on in in certain countries, with regards to the particular case in Canada, there's obviously a lot of allegations there around whether the the, the finances are being handled properly. Let's face it, the Canadian Federation have just had a huge paycheck from the men's participation in, in the World Cup. The prize money is enormous for that competition, so um, you could argue that this shouldn't be happening at all. I and it's well, the other thing that is really striking me as well um, in recent years is that players are realising the power of their voices. They, they have the... Around the world, we're seeing players feeling like they, they, they want to speak out. That's partly been inspired by, um, although it's a different case, you know, the NWSL players and, and their bravery speaking out but a lot and a lot of other examples around the world. But that's really, I think, empowered players to say, yeah, we, we do have a voice and people should be listening to us. And this is just the latest example of that. We're seeing in Spain as well. And I, yeah, just hope that there's a, a positive resolution. What's frustrating about it, though, is, and as Tom says, like, we're seeing a lot of teams step up and demand equal pay, and that's happening in a number of countries um, around the world. The fact that other federations don't look at that and say, we should do that. Why do we have to wait until players have to step up to fight for it? Like, why are we always so reactive and not saying, yes, this is the proper way, this is the way it should go, this is what should be happening in football, let's do this without having to cause all sorts of of issues within our own federation and like if i'm reading right they the players are still waiting for compensation for any of the work they've done for canada soccer in 2022 and as tom says they've just received this huge check from fifa like where is the money 
I do think, um, I mean, this does just seem to be a very big theme at the moment, it's just being embarrassed into action rather than, like yeah. you said, Rach, being proactive and actually doing something about it to show that a genuine, authentic want to do the right thing. Um, yeah, I just, the whole situation is very bizarre, but it is still uh, massively ongoing. So I think we will return to it in a future episode because I think this definitely needs to be explored further. And and we do love a deep dive topic, Rach, don't we? We do love a deep love dive. Um, but yeah, not to end on anything too deep. I mean, what, what are we up to this weekend, guys? Where are we going to be? I mean, Rach, obviously, we're going to see each other again on Thursday in, in bright and sunny Milton Keynes, hopefully. Um, I mean, Tom, hopefully you'll make it out of your car at some point. <laughs> I will spend a lot of the next week in my car. But uh, I've actually lucked out, uh, guys, because um, I don't know how the stars align for this, but they've chosen Milton Keynes, Coventry and Bristol for these games. I grew up in Milton Keynes for the first 18 years of my life, then lived in Bristol for five years. And I've got family in Coventry, so I don't, I, I'm very oh. fortunate with the, the venues they've chosen. It will never happen again. We'll probably be uh, <laughs> off to uh, other parts of the country next year. But yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a next fortnight in the car press conferences here at St George's Park, but just hoping to see some great football. Amazing. I mean, I, I mean, I don't want to make you guys too jealous, but I'm uh, I'm just about to move into a flat I've bought, and there there are serious renovation works. We've literally ripped off ceilings and walls all over oh. the shop. Um, it's been it's been horrible. But the the highlight of the weekend is that it was an international break for uh for, for the championship, so I'll actually get to sit down and watch the the games, the Arnold Clark Cup game, the comfort of a, of a new place. I mean, I don't have any furniture, so I'll be sitting on the floor, but... I'm finally going to get a chance to just sit down. I thought that was going to be the end of the sentence. <laughs> no, no, no. No, I still more walls to be ripped. Um... <laughs> Right, well, I mean, we will catch up with you guys uh, on Thursday. Uh, we've got the Upfront at the Match episode coming to you. I mean, we wouldn't miss the return of the Lionesses now, would we? Uh, that episode will be out on Saturday. Thank you so much for joining us, Tom. Uh, and thank you so much to, to all of our listeners for joining us today on Upfront. We'll be back next week. Uh, but if you have any questions for the show, tweet us at Football Ramble. I am at Morgie underscore 89. Rach is at Girls on the Ball. And Tom is Tom J. Gary, that's Gary with two R's. Uh, we'll see you next week. Upfront is a stack production and part of the ACAST Creator Network. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.